and welcome to another episode of There Will Be A Test. I'm your host, Dave Thornton. Today's funny people, Ben Knight, Claire Hooper and Mark O'Toole. Our experts are Professor Andrew Pask, Dr. Brent Davis and Dr. Rebecca Allen. Hope you enjoy the show. And welcome to There Will Be A Test. I'm your host, Dave Thornton and... If I'm going to go out on a limb, I'll say I'm an expert in telling my dentist I regularly floss when <laughs> I certainly do not. <laughs> As always, our panel needs to pay attention because there will be a test. So let's meet our panel. Hi, my name is Ben Knight and I'm an expert in the unification of quantum mechanics and gravity. <laughs> wow, same. And three times tables. <laughs> Hi, I'm Claire Hooper and I can't even confidently answer questions about myself. <laughs> And I'm Marco Tool, and I have probably the largest swizzle stick collection in the country. So uh, I reckon I'm an expert in buying pointless crap off the internet. I genuinely think you three are the entire breadth of information here. <laughs> <laughs> Nighty, you've gone really out on a limb. Claire's just checked out. And Tool Man, you've gone, yeah, I got swizzle sticks. That's no. my jam. Bro. No, I'm going to play hard. Don't worry about me. Um, and if anything, I do, I've got a reasonable short term memory and a really bad long term memory. Great. Like, I'm a, I actually back myself at this, but don't ask me next week what I heard today. <laughs> Calling it early. I just called the win early. If anyone's listening, commit a crime with Claire Hooper because there's no way no. she will put you into the authority. What were you doing? Darren says he was with you last Friday. Could have been. No idea. <laughs> but Tool Man, are you you went to university? Are you an I, educated yeah, I man? Went. You went. Yeah, I went. I went that was there a really long time. I mean, people that were there as long as I am usually have PhDs. I ended up working yeah. there. I was there so long they gave me a job. Yeah. Nighty, what did you did you study? I'm a teacher. I'm a oh, primary school teacher. Of course, I forgot. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel you're going to be good with the experts? <laughs> I really like science. I'm a mad science nerd. This would be interesting. Our first expert is a professor of epigenetics at the University of Melbourne, Andrew Pask. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thank you. What are you going to be talking about today? Um, I'm going to talk about the Tasmanian tiger or thylacine. Thylacine. Yes, it is also known. Sick. Yes. We have a projection up of a thylacine. Did I say that right, Andrew? You did. Yeah. It sounds like a drug for a thyroid problem, I've got to be honest. <laughs> I didn't think I was going to nail it, but it's a black and white picture of it. Can you describe what they are? Like how they're tigers, but they look like dogs, and how big were they? So they were about the size of sort of a medium to large sized dog, but they were marsupials. So they have a pouch underneath that back leg there yeah. um, where they had their babies in a pouch just like a, a kangaroo. Um, so they're really incredibly unique and amazing marsupials because they look so much like a dog. So that's called what we call convergent evolution, when two species evolve so that they look almost completely identical. And in fact, they're so identical, you can barely, even you know people who really know um, skulls and skeletons very well can barely tell the difference between their skull and a dog skull. They look almost identical. Do they have, I mean, if their skulls are the same, do they have the same diet as a dog? Yeah, so that's So they don't eat like it, a kangaroo. Exactly. So right. that's why we think their skull evolved to be the same is because they, they lived in the same environment, they ate small prey, they had to chase it and hunt it down, so then they evolved to look almost identical. But despite that, yep, they had a pouch and they had little joeys in their pouch. Oh, man, hipsters would love that dog. Yeah, you could just right, put a couple of IPAs oh, in that pouch yeah. and stroll around. Yeah. <laughs> What's it called where they emer- what is it? emergent evolution? What did you say then? Convergent evolution. Converge- and yeah. it was, it's when they both... Yeah, evolve to look the same. Oh. There's lots of different examples, but none of them are anywhere near as good as the thylacine and the dog. That's the best example of convergent evolution in mammals. What that about we know the of. snake and the penis? Yeah, explain that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So what animals are they close related to then? Uh, Tasmanian devils. Really? So, but their closest relative is the number. What is the number? The number. It's just, it's a little, I mean, like, it, 
It's just one of you, like, in that school of possums and, like, native rats, and right. except it's a bit bigger. I would really describe it as a dazzurid marsupial uh, insectivore. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> no, it's like yeah. a little I was medium-sized, smallish marsupial, but they eat insects. Okay. Which what's is a, important. What's a we'll come back to that later because we're going to try – we want to try and de-extinct this guy, bring it back. Oh, and oh, it's close to relatively Well, Andrew, let's talk about this. As far as the scientists are concerned, when did it go to – Extinction. September 7th, 1936, I think, uh, you know, which is now National Extinction Day because it's one of the few species in the world that, sadly, we know exactly the minute when that species disappeared from the face of the earth. Oh, God. So it's a really tragic thing, but at least, you know, it's now used as sort of a poster child to remember about, you know, human intervention causing animals to go extinct. Ooh, what happened to the last one? Did someone like back over it? or <laughs> They left it out in yeah. the zoo, right? Yeah. So yeah, that's so it was living in Hobart Zoo no. and it was September 7th, right? So it's early, early spring and Tasmania is bloody cold, right? Yeah. And so the, the keeper literally forgot to put it away one night. No. Came back in the morning, last thylacine dead. Wow. I mean, you couldn't, froze. you couldn't get it, just perished. It was getting kind of old then. They only lived like seven, eight years. And, uh, so it was an old, an old fella and he just, it was too cold and he died. But he didn't have a girlfriend or anything. He, he, like he was couldn't gonna, have brought the species He was always going to be the end oh, of the line. Still tragic. I heard the keepers were checking out the wall of vaginas down at Mona and they <laughs> <Yeah>. just forgot <laughs> about it. <laughs> that would, you know, you'd lose your concentration on that one. You just mentioned de-extinction? De-extinction, yeah. So that's the process now where you can, Bring an extinct animal back to life. So this is no longer science fiction. This is truly science fact. So we have the technology to do it. People are doing it. So the animal uh, that's no, progressed... you breezed over that. No, 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 no. Hang on. Sorry, yeah. we yeah. have the technology to bring things back to life. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They're going to do that with a woolly mammoth as so well, that's aren't it. they? That's the what? one they've come the furthest yeah. with is woolly mammoth. Uh, what? Aren't they, are they going to, correct me, correct me if I'm wrong, put it into an elephant? Are they going to... That's the plan. They're going to put what so into the elephant. That, that was the scientific way <laughs> of saying that. It doesn't sound nice for the elephant. Most elephants that you see in zoos, in fact, almost all elephants in zoos are born from IVF. So they're really good at shipping elephant sperm all around the world because there's not big enough populations of elephants to get good genetic diversity. So they just ship this stuff around. They do artificial insemination. They're very good at implanting embryos and growing embryos in elephants. So they're actually, they've got a lot of that technology in place. What a pick-up so from the post office. It'll be, yeah, right? You just now it'll be a... Just, yeah, that little punnet, that's mine. <laughs> <laughs> Two litre bloody milk cart. Yeah. That's elephants. Yeah. Okay, these things have only been extinct for 100-odd yeah. years or less, but with woolly mammoths, they've been gone for... Yeah, well, thousands of years. So it's a much bigger task to try and do it for a woolly mammoth. I mean, the, so the good thing about the woolly mammoth is that they're very, very, very closely related to Asian elephants. So when you sequence their DNA, so that you can go, because there's lots of frozen samples of woolly mammoth, there's lots of, you know, samples that have sort of stayed up in the permafrost. So you can take that tissue, you can sequence the entire genome. So that's the entire blueprint of what it was to make the woolly mammoth. Mm. And they've done that. And um, so once you've got that... You then compare it to a living animal. So in this case, it's the Asian elephant. They're very, very closely related. So they've only been separated for, you know, a few tens of thousands of years. So not so long in terms of evolutionary terms, which means that their DNA is really similar to the DNA from the Asian elephant. Then what you do is you take all the places in that DNA then where the woolly mammoth is different from the Asian elephant mm. and you start going through and you just edit those changes in. And then by the end of it, you've got a woolly mammoth cell. 
and then we can use that to bring a whole woolly mammoth back. I mean, woolly mammoths are pretty damn cool. I would really... Yeah, I'd love, I'd love Andrew, to see one. So. Andrew, have, have you and the guys at work ever seen Jurassic Park? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because, you know... Yeah, it didn't end well. All right, here's my question for you. How long till we get the mammoth? I'm regularly looking at something like 10 years. It depends on... Because they're worried about how big it's going to get inside oh. an Asian elephant. So that's the biggest problem. They're trying to create... The artificial womb at the moment. Oh, what a terrible oh, way to go. Nice. Oh, really mammoths yeah. going inside you. The scientists at the same time go, no, no, we can't do this. Is it kind of like So ethically there's a really good question there, right, about why you want to do it. And I think that's a, it's an interesting question for the woolly, woolly mammoth because it's been gone for a long time. It is a human-driven extinction. Like, we hunted those beasts to extinction. Not well, unlike... You made some great jumpers out of them. The thylacine. Hey. I mean, yeah, you get <laughs> 50 at least out of that thing, yeah. But, we, you know, so we, we, we killed the thylacine. We, we were the reason that that animal is lost from the face of the earth. And it was very recent, right? It was 1936, so it's not that long ago. So the great thing about the thylacine is that its entire ecosystem still exists in Tasmania, and there's a lot of evidence that it would really help that ecosystem if you put that animal back. Because the cool thing about the thylacine as well is it was an apex predator. So they're these animals that sit right at the top of the food chain and eat everything beneath them. And if you think about other mammals, like the woolly mammoth, so we call them placental mammals, there are heaps of examples of apex predators. So you've got bears and killer whales and wolves. Like you can think of so many examples of those animals, tigers, lions, you know, you name it, they're all apex predators. But when it comes to marsupials, there are none. The thylacine was it. There are no other apex predators. And so then you start to see things happening in Tasmania like the devil facial tumour virus. So remember the Tasmanian devil's got that awful virus. Yes. Yeah. You know, it spreads from yeah. animal to animal. But when you've got an apex predator there, they eat all those sick animals in the population, right? So if you've got a sick Tasmanian devil, the Tasmanian tiger would come in and, and eat them. So they're not left around to spread disease to everybody else. And so it's when you lose these animals from the food chain that you start to see things like this happening. And so I think for the Tasmanian tiger, there is a really good reason as to why we would want to bring that animal back. And you really could put it back into the environment where it could not only survive, but also hopefully thrive back in that environment as well. well Woolly mammoth, I'm not so sure about. You need lots of tundra. Yeah, they, they need those facial that tumor things. Yeah. That would be great. Right. I have a question because I feel like you made a promise um, to explain why the numbat is significant. And please tell me you're not going to try and put a thylacine in a numbat's <laughs> womb. Please. I couldn't. I mean, I just feel her pain. So you can do it because marsupials give birth to a jelly bean, right? So it doesn't matter. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Right? So they're the perfect one for that. See? So, yep. you know, it's all good. But the problem with the numbat is it eats ants, right? So it's not really the best place to start for an apex predator that was, you know, a carnivore eating meat. <laughs> So you mean the placental, like as in what it's getting delivered in utero? Is no, it how it different its DNA is because obviously oh, it has okay. a completely different diet, completely different skull shape. So for bringing the thylacine back, there's a lot more edits that we have to make to that genome than you do for bringing the mammoth okay. back. But we're getting so much better at that technology. You know, 10 years ago, this was unthinkable. Now it's completely feasible for closely related species and I'm sure within another five to 10 years, it will be completely feasible again for doing something like the Tassie tiger, and definitely in our lifetime it'll be a question of not if we can bring these animals back, but should we bring these animals back. That's, I know it's going to be way too hard, but can you do it in like one or two sentences how you edit those genes? 
Yeah, so at the moment we, we use special tools called CRISPR, it's called, but we can actually make these things that go in and they will actually change the DNA sequence one bit at a time. So that's what takes so long is because we have to do it in small little pieces and make sure we've got the right change before we move forward. But, but what, are, what is CRISPR? Is it lasers? Is it like- No, it's, it's little stretches of DNA that you use that actually can go into the cell and then actually bind to that bit of d- okay, DNA in the th- genome and then switch yep. the sequence out okay. yeah, to fix it. This is an amazing... Amazing trajectory. We've gone from are we are we uterus or oh, ah that that womb looks like it's sore to okay. Let's get to the nitty gritty. How's this going to work? Do I need some WD forty? What's going on? Yeah, this, how about how I just? I mean, if you could just isolate me saying, are there lasers? Yeah. <laughs> I would like to use that as a ringtone right, for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Do you guys feel confident about all the information that you just heard? Got it all. Oh, so good. No idea. <laughs> Not a I'd like to welcome our lecturer in archaeology, also from the University of Melbourne, Dr. Brent Davis. Now, Brent, I, uh, all of my references are from pop culture. I think I'm sitting across from Australia's version of Indiana Jones. That- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the closest you'll ever see. Yeah. Yes, great. This is awesome. <laughs> so what specifically are we going to talk about And why about didn't you bring your hat? <laughs> As a whip. Yes, yeah. and the whip, please, yeah. Uh, I'm going to talk about the Minoans today. Oh, I've never heard of them. Who are the Minoans? Where did they live and when did they live? Okay, so the Minoans were the civilization that lived on the island of Crete during the Bronze Age, between about 3000 BC and about 1450 BC. Um, the Minoans are the earliest complex civilization that we know of anywhere in Europe um, at the time. The whole rest of the continent was populated by small groups of farmers, pastoralists, um, hunter-gatherers, and so on. The Minoan civilization really started to take off around 1900 BC or so when they started constructing a series of gigantic buildings at various places on Crete. Um, the largest of these is called Knossos. Can we uh, say it, that again? Knossos. Okay. Knossos. Yeah, there's a picture. Oh, of oh, look there. At it. oh, there we go, up on the projector. Oh, that that looks quite nice. Well, hasn't it? So, yeah, the largest of these buildings is called Knossos in north-central Crete. There's a picture of it there, part of it, along with uh, one of its wall paintings. This building contained over 1,200 rooms. Wow, it what a hostel. Wow. What was it That for? is crazy. Yeah. Well, um, the site was excavated by a, a British archaeologist named Arthur Evans around 1900, and he dubbed it a palace. There's a picture of it there. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's gigantic. It, yeah. It's honestly just come up, and it looks somewhere between SimCity City. And like an Escher painting. It is huge. It, it is gigantic. And as you can see, it's multiple stories as well. So, but um, how do you know that's what it looked like? Because the, the photo of it in actuality is just a bit piecey, like it's a bit knocked down. How, well, that's right, yeah. So how do you know what it used to be? Well, the various pieces that actually end up on the ground, uh, they bear the imprints of the function mm. they once served. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, with a bit of luck and a bit of skill, you can piece together even a building of that size. So, so who, who would have lived there? Well, uh, Evans called it a palace, but... Um, uh, it does look kind of like an apartment block. Well, it looks we, like, you know, like maybe, yeah. maybe the kind of the younger people, the younger Minoans would have been there and there would have been a pool there and parties. <laughs> what it was was a, was a gigantic uh, administrative centre for um, controlling the north-central region of Crete. So wow. it was like Centrelink. <laughs> yeah. It's just an ancient Centrelink. Can you see the line of people out the front? Yeah, that's oh, right. there it is. <laughs> well, what happened to the Minoans? How did they 
disappear when they had such a good administrative center? <laughs> well, right now the Greeks are on the mainland living a very pedestrian kind of life as mainly hunters and, and, mm -hmm. and so on. Eventually, around the uh, middle of the 15th century BC, the Greeks actually come over to Crete and we find them now in control of these uh, administrative centers. Actually, all the other ones except for Knossos uh, were destroyed at the time. But we can't really chalk that up to the what we call the Mycenaean Greeks. That's those early Greek people who lived uh, back in the Bronze Age. We can't really chalk that up to a Mycenaean invasion of Crete. could very well be that the different administrative centers across Crete were vying with each other for natural resources, and there was mm. conflict between them, and then the Mycenaeans just stepped into the vacuum. Right. Uh, once the Mycenaean Greeks take over Knossos, they start keeping administrative records, which we can now read. Uh, they're in a script called Linear B that was deciphered back in the 1950s, uh, and we can see lists of people and lists of all kinds of goods and commodities flowing in and out of the so-called palace, and amongst the lists of people, there are lots and lots of Greek names, and lots and lots of definitely not Greek names. So the Minoans didn't go anywhere. They were still there. But it looks like they were cooperating with each other, with the Mycenaeans now in charge for some reason. It's yeah, been very right. difficult to figure out exactly oh what happened. Could you, could you do something with the Greek DNA and put a Minoan in a Greek womb? <laughs> could we get the Minoans back? Can we get it back? Look, okay, I'm so sorry. I'm so glad I didn't say that sentence. Do you know, if people are listening to that as a man, can we just put that Mycenaean into that Minoan? Can we just make that happen? <laughs> Fantastic, fancy administrative building. Where did the Minoans live? Did they have like apartment blocks or little houses or they in tents? Or? Well, that, that huge building is surrounded by a gigantic town. Yeah, wow. Full of buildings. Some buildings were made of stone, some were made of mud brick, depending, of course, on where you were in the economic strata. Uh, but yeah. What we're seeing now up on screen, it was a painting of what looks to be like a bull or something, some people standing around and someone doing a backflip on the back yeah. of that bull. It's called bull leaping. Of course it is. And, That's exactly what they're doing now. And uh, we have many, many depictions of this. It seems to have been a ritual that they practiced. Uh, the center of Knossos is a, it's a, a gigantic courtyard. And evidently this is what was done in the courtyard, or one of the things that was done in the courtyard. We don't fully understand what it means, whether it was an exhibition of sporting prowess or whether it was um, some kind of a symbolic, you know, conquering of nature. Well, maybe the bull was just running at you really fast and yeah. you really had to get out of its way. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> true. Just yeah. common sense, yeah. really. It's the yeah. sport it's of common survival. sense. We have paintings where, where it goes pear-shaped, too. Yeah. What well, yeah. well, the, yeah. like, like impaling. Some, Some people don't always make it over. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So we're implanting a little bit of bull in a little bit of um, Minoan. <laughs> <Yeah>, pretty <laughs> much, yeah. Right. The hard way. Yeah. So <laughs> do you see much overlap with, like, Greek... Uh, gods and deities and Absolutely, Minoans. yep. Yeah. This is the interesting thing. Once the Mycenaeans take over Knossos, they proceed to start borrowing huge chunks of Minoan culture, which become incorporated into Greek culture. And those things stay in Greek culture right down to the classical period. So the Minoans essentially are the, the forebearers of Western civilization. Wow, they're wow. like the indie yeah. band before it went mainstream. Pretty yes. much. Yeah. That's no, incredible. Yeah. But what about the written Minoans. word? Like, do the Greeks borrow language from the Minoans? Well, I, I mentioned that uh, the Greeks used the script called Linear B, which was deciphered in the 1950s. That's how we know that it's Greek. Uh, but the uh, Mycenaeans borrowed that script from the Minoans. The Minoans used a script called Linear A, and uh, the Mycenaeans borrowed it directly, all of the signs. So as a result... Um, we can actually take linear A records because they kept them. We have 
clay tablets uh, uh, by the hundreds. There, there you go. Wow. That's a Minoan oh, clay wow. tablet. Oh. There's a clay tablet now up on the projector. And, and because, they look like really rudimentary emojis. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> they do kind of. I'm oh sorry, God. but I know we're meant to stay on track, but I can see a dick and balls right in the middle. <laughs> yes. Just can to we, bring it can, back to the real theme of this <laughs> podcast. You had, a, you had a cipher. Can we, can we have a look at the whole cipher? Wow. That's so cool. The interesting so thing is that... they actually mean letters or sounds? They um, Each one stands for a syllable. So it's a consonant plus a vowel. Yep. Da, da, oh, de, cool. de, do, do, and so on. Uh, because we can read linear B, we can actually take linear A tablets and, and pronounce them. But what comes out is a language unlike anyone's ever heard before. Well, yeah, so cool. I was like, how many people in the world can speak it? Anyone? Well, no, because we don't know what language it is. Hey. We can read it out loud, but well, how can you read it out loud then? Because, get, um, oh, sorry, because, Mark, this is just no, this is we're getting to this the, is great. Yeah, it's good yeah. stuff. It's because linear B is deciphered. We can read it out loud, and they borrow the same symbols. Oh, so there are people that mean? can talk Klingon, but it's, there's it's no one like, that can talk. Klingon. It's like you can read English and understand it. You could also read Italian because it uses the same alphabet, even if you don't speak Italian. Thank you. Makes I understand. Sense. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. But so if we, they could decode linear B, surely, surely somebody smart, you know, somebody who was able to decode back in the 50s yeah. linear B, surely they can just... It's one of the holy grails of archaeology to be able to read this script. But the, the, one of the main keys to deciphering any undeciphered script is you have to know what the language is. Well, yes. Yeah. This language, when we read linear A out loud, is unlike any known language on earth. So, Brent, how? Now, you said it's a series of noises. I will concede I feel like I speak linear A late on a Saturday night. If you're just working up a series of grunts, I can nail that KPI right between the eyes. But can you at all give a crack? Like, are there rudimentary words that you can say in Minoan? I'll read a bit of linear A to you. Siciane da dumine quaminara awapi tesudeskei. Adara tidite quati tasacha tatei kecha. Fish and chips, $7.50. We have no idea what it means. That comes from an inscription on a woman's hairpin. Really? We have no idea what it means. Made in Manoa. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, Brent, thank you so much. Or as the Minoans say, so really do appreciate you coming down. We're going to get our last expert in. Do you feel at the moment you've retained all the information from both Brent? No, and I had to drop all of the thylacine things from my brain yeah, to get that in. Um, so, Brent, in another fifteen minutes, I will remember nothing of this. Okay, good but, for you. Um, Boy, it's been good. <laughs> so good. Jeez, I, that puts a pep in your step. <laughs> Quickly forgettable. No, 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 no. <laughs> Not at all. You wait and see. Okay. And that was amazing. Thank you so yeah, much. My so pleasure, Mike. As this podcast can consistently do, it makes me feel insecure about my formal education because this expert is from the Centre of Astrophysics and Supercomputing. Oh, man. At Swinburne University. Make of her welcome, Dr. Rebecca Allen. In that sphere... Doc of astrophysics and supercomputing, what are we going to be talking about? I thought today we could explore a little bit about how we go out and explore space and looking at the future of spaceflight. Sure. Um, okay, well, let's backtrack it a little bit then. Let's give a little bit of uh, history 
on where we're at now right. before we head off into yeah. the future. So it's been uh, quite a few years since man uh, ever stepped foot on the moon and woman has still not yet stepped foot on the moon. Uh, and when it comes to technology, we really haven't advanced that much. In fact, the U.S., since they stopped using the space shuttles, are re- still reliant on Russian Soyuz spacecraft, which is actually about 70 years old. What? Yeah. <laughs> what what's going on with Elon? Isn't well, he... Elon has designed a big, shiny new shuttle yeah. um, to take us to to the moon and hopefully to Mars and beyond. And the SpaceX uh, spaceship will hopefully be that craft that NASA will now depend on to get astronauts and the first female astronaut to the moon. It's really interesting that it's like an independent operator that's that's the, at the forefront of space exploration now. Like mm. it used to be nations, but it's like... No, it's just one rich guy that really likes the space. Thank goodness for him because, like, I guess nations have to feed people and, you know, buy bombs so they can't really buy space (laughs) exploration devices anymore, can they? But, yeah, like when did actual countries stop having the money to explore? Look, that's a great question. I think that's part of why the shuttle program originally got um, retired was because it was costing billions of dollars to send the shuttle into space and now – with Elon Musk's technology with SpaceX, the cost of uh, sending things to space is much cheaper. Instead of it being tens of thousands of dollars per kilogram, now it's only a few thousand dollars per kilogram. So that takes the cost of putting things in space down by a lot. So what would the driver be for private enterprise? I mean, if, if I guess back in the day it was a race, you know, it was, it was national pride, it was science, it was all those kind of things. So what's the driver for the Elon Musks and corporations? So it still is about the money, and even though the nation don't have the capability to do it and maintain a lot of these diverse programs anymore. Um, they still want to contract somebody out to do that. And so the idea that, you know, whether you're Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, the idea that your technology could be the one that's filling that need, there's still a huge amount of profit in it. But then also when you look at it too, so we're talking about sending people to space. Well, you know, we also want to send more things to space. And so with SpaceX, we have the uh, constellation of satellites that they want to Used for communication, yeah, cool. so there's lots and lots of money in it. Wow! So Amazon Prime's going to hit the moon. That is Absolutely. incredible. That is crazy. So then, once we get to the moon, so uh, what's the plan then? Are we how far are we going to go? <laughs> well, um, so the idea we get to the moon, and that is kind of our then launch station to go off to Mars and more deep space travel. So the poor moon is going to get mined. Um, it's going to get inhabited by us, which I feel really bad for it. So the moon just becomes this galactic motel on a highway yeah. where everyone stops. You yeah. hope they clean the sheets and then That's they right. move through it. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I mean, if you're cutting to the chase, what well, are we out there for? Well, honestly, as an astronomer, I think we have to really come back to the question of why are we why do people even go to space? You know, we put somebody on the moon, awesome achievement for mankind. Why do we care about going back to the moon? Why do we care about going to Mars? And the best answer for that is that humans can carry out all these experiments in real time, whereas as amazing as these rovers and robots are on Mars, they creep along at, you know, very slow pace. And by the time they, you know, two days later, we realize they might have found something interesting. They can't turn around and go back and yeah. dig their little scrapers even further. Yeah. My and dad always used to say, don't send a robot to do a man's work. There you, so go. Go. <laughs> there you go. He was an enlightened man. He's a very enlightened man. <laughs> How long before we get to Mars? 
That's a great question. So the idea is we have the Artemis program, which is seeking to go back to the moon and put the first woman on the moon. And that's supposed to happen over the next five to 10 years. And then there's many more stages of that Artemis mission. But then at the same time, we're supposed to be preparing to send people to Mars and also sending robots back to Mars to do the first sample collection. So one would wonder, that's quite an ambitious plan. And so we're set to get to Mars within the next decade, decade and a half. Um, if I can be a bit of a cynic, I don't know if we're ever going to get there because there's going to be woolly mammoths on Mars. Well, we value human life. And so can we actually safely send somebody there? And the, the answer to that question is no. So when you said Artemis before, going back to what we were talking about, is that a private business or is that a government business? Or is that- so, so Artemis is the NASA mission, but to fulfill that, they are looking to private companies such as uh, SpaceX and then also Jeff Bezos Blue Origin to develop certain parts of it. So SpaceX is going to build the big shiny rocket, and I say that because you look at it and you can tell it's a very um, – Interesting looking rocket. Is it the right rocket for a woman to go? Um, <laughs> um, I would question that, and I hope yep. that this time they can get the spacesuit right as well, because there was a big snafu when they tried to do the first all female spacewalk at uh, the space station. Um, they couldn't because they only had one spacesuit that would fit a woman. I thought you were going to say high heel shoes or something, something like really horrible like that. It's horrific. We've got a couple of myths that we might want to bust before mm. you leave, Rebecca. So if your body is exposed in space, like in the movies, do you just explode? So you don't exactly explode. When you're in space, it's really, really cold, but you're also deprived of oxygen. So some really not fun stuff happens to your blood, um, and you kind of cook and suffocate at the same time. So Good. it's not the way I'd want to go. But Good. it's like it's cold. So it's like not cooking. It's more ceviche. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're, you're um, kind of curing. Cured. Yeah. Mm, it sounds better in your accent. <laughs> but your eyes don't pop out because like they always eye. seem to kind of pop yeah. out. Yeah, they do, yeah. they do bulge. Oh, cool. Do they? Yeah. You cure. Yeah. There's no easy way to tell you this. Your husband's jerky. This is what's happening. <laughs> no one's actually done that, though. No, right? no. Would, so we should get If I held my breath, how long would I last? Not that long. Uh, I think at the Aww. most you'd last a few minutes, but That's I think it's, right. it's literally That's so cold. That's a long time yeah, to know you're curing like, to yeah, death. Yeah. So if I had to like get from one spaceship to another, you could do it. Just <gasps> boom, jump. Yeah, out. I think the 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 kind of the effects that you get from the the coldness of space would probably not be so great. <sighs> Ben, what I like about this, you know you're from Queensland because you're like, I reckon if I hold my breath, I could do it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do it. Oh, bro, bro I'd smash this. 20 bucks, I'll, I'll give it a crack. Holding your breath, trying to squeeze your eyeballs back. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy. Give me goggles, I'm fine. Nah, just have your wraparound sunnies. You'll be fine. <laughs> they're on my, they're on oh, my no, my where's my nets? Oh, no. <laughs> Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us. Guys, that's the end of the experts. We now... Have the test. How do you feel about it? Are you confident? I want to ask no, well, yeah. you've ruined it, Dave. Why? This was fun until you said that. <laughs> Hi. Sorry to interrupt the podcast at this crucial time. Oh, just before the test. But I have a quick and important message. A lot has happened around the world since we recorded this episode. At the time of recording, the comedians on this panel had their Melbourne International Comedy Festival shows on the horizon. Unfortunately, it was all cancelled due to COVID-19, which means a major source of their annual income has completely disappeared. But there is something you can do. The Comedy Festival has come up with a clever way to help them out. So pause this podcast right now 
go to comedyfestival.com.au, click on the donation buttons and follow the instructions. It's really easy. You can donate directly to the individual comedians on this episode. Search for Ben Knight and Claire Hooper. Thanks for that. I know they'll really appreciate it. Now back to the podcast. Oh, and of course, that very exciting test. All right, guys, here we go. First question. Where do marsupial babies complete their development after they are born? In the pouch. Ben, In the correct. marsupial yeah. pouch. I was going to say a shoebox full of straw on top of the uh, hot water service, but I think that might have been <laughs> kitty litter. I yeah. I'd just tuck one down my bra. I'd be fine. <laughs> it's cozy. Spare keys. Well, yeah, that's right. I've got my keys. I've got $2 card. for the parking, and I've got a little jelly bean of a thylacine. <laughs> <laughs> Don't mix them up. <laughs> With the number, pop its little head out. Yeah. By the way, can I just say that I make a great girl's name pronounced differently? Just Thalassony. Isn't that nice? Thal- oh, God. Do right? you think it's That's nice? just triggering for all the bogan mums that I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. Here's little Thalassony. Yeah. Why is my daughter it, struggling with spelling? Because you named her Crystal with a K and it was dollar sign. <laughs> Bogan. I felt personal. <laughs> ben, I don't know any of the kids that have come through in your classes. Anyway. What is meant by the term convergent evolution, Claire? Right. Well, the, yeah, I know. Ben really wanted to answer nah, this one. Go. Suck it. Go. Watch me. Oh, well, from two <laughs> completely different genetic branches, two animals developed to actually have very similar skeletons or very similar appearances. Spot on. Okay. So yeah, it was way better than what I would have said. Oh, yeah. What would you have said? No, nah, exactly you that. You would have said, looks like a dog. Look, look like a dog if they both got stripes but one was like a marsupial and one was a cane yeah see again it's a queenslander in you two staffies and a tiger that'd be sick of my you that'd be so sick bro imagine a thylamacine with a grey hair striping man be so fast. Take me down the tracks. Put fifty on. That's it. right. We can't call it the dogs. You can call it the mistupials. Let's get out of the mistupials, guys. <laughs> I'm just going to put a couple of bucks on the mistupials. <laughs> what animal would be used to host a woolly mammoth? Which was it, Mark? Or was it Claire? Give it to Mark. Indian elephant? No. Oh, no. Oh. Unfortunately, Claire, I'll throw it across to you. Well, let's say it together. Asian elephant. We're sharing the points like best friends. Wow. What is the closest relative of the Tassie tiger? Do Claire. You, well, numbat? Correct. Okay, great. The thylacine <laughs> is the only marsupial to be what kind of predator? Claire. I'm so sorry, everyone. Apex predator. But do you want me not to answer them? I'm just excited. I don't I'm feel you are sorry. I've been out. You're very competitive throughout this podcast. Hey. All right. Yeah, you're right. Can I can I just interject? Yes, yes Ben. Uh, I wasn't there like ten thousand years ago. There was like hectic marsupials that were like apex predators as well. I wanted to ask that, but well, we got we we got cut off. There was a lot of like big animals. Yeah, there, there was like meat eating wombats and kangaroos. Like I don't, I don't know if that was the only apex marsupial. I just want to. Question, I just want to question oh, is, it. Is, is, is hectic like the scientific term? Like yeah. hectic, hectic mus, yeah. Mus, hecticus. Google it. I reckon okay, good. There, there was other there were other apex marsupials. Okay. I remember reading right. it. I reckon I'll really get to that. Yeah. Now, <laughs> the next question is, <laughs> the Minoans lived on which island? <laughs> Claire. Crete. Correct. God, she's At good. the peak time of Minoan civilization, what was the rest of Europe up to? <laughs> Just farming <laughs> and is, hunting. And farming, gathering some hunting, of that. And hunting, gathering, okay, yes, sure. that, is, right. that is right. According to 
Ben, the ancient building Knossos was what? Centrelink. That is true. I was going to say hectic. Hectic. (laughs) (laughs) Bro, it was a hectic Centrelink. If I'm going to be honest, I think I feel it was both. Like it was big enough to be a pretty hectic Centrelink. How many rooms did it have? Ben, twelve hundred. Correct. You could check out any time you like, but you could never leave. (laughs) (laughs) I think that was their national anthem. Something like that. What is the as yet undeciphered Minoan script called? Claire. Linear A. Correct. Oh, I thought it was B. Oh, that was the one they have deciphered in the 50s, but it's a different, like, same cipher, but different language. Man, when he spoke that other language... That was like I fully expected him to summon an ancient god or I something. Know. It, it was, was like so the, good. The mummy. Mm-hmm. Who's the privateer behind SpaceX? Claire? Elon Musk. Correct. Tesla penis himself. <laughs> I'm glad you've consistently got the thread going. Thanks, yeah, mate. it's all about <laughs> Tesla penis. Pe- why Tesla penis? See where the rocket's coming from. You know, he uh, shot one into space. Yeah. I just, I'm convinced he mounted the rocket that sent it into space so that it just shot out from between his legs. But I still have great respect for him and his science. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Which planet is NASA hoping to send people to by the late 2020s? Ben? Mars. Correct. You look slightly angry at that answer. Uh-huh. I was like, duh. No, sorry. I was, I was, yeah. Thank you. Oh, you must be a great teacher to those young kids. Yeah, duh. Is that your answer? <laughs> <laughs> Next question. What went wrong with the first all-female spacewalk? Uh, there was only one There was only one outfit, wasn't it? Was, there was only yeah. one, one spacesuit. There was only one size of spacesuit that fit. Yeah. Yeah. But the whole thing that you go into space and no one's wearing the same outfit as you is pretty kind of cool, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. What happens to you if you're exposed in space? Clear. Ceviche, Dave. Um, you get cured. And, is... Well, so the oxygen, like there's no oxygen and it's very cold. But Naughty reckons And also your eyes off. pop out unless you're wearing your wrap unless, unless, <laughs> <laughs> unless you hold your breath. Yeah, that's right. If you hold your breath. Hold your breath put like your Oakleys on. Just really gut it <laughs> from one spaceship to the next spaceship. Bro, I'm going straight Bro, for the Bro, just start the cross. motor. I'll jump from mine to yours. <laughs> <laughs> the scores are in. And the winner, probably to no one's surprise, being completely overly competitive. Hey, well, Claire Hooper. I'll lean back out of it when I started hey, to feel You did a good job, mate. Okay, thanks, You bro. did an amazing job. Thanks and, of course, Ben, Mark, thank nerd. you so much. You're a nerd. You are. And, of course, we'd like to thank today's experts. Professor Andrew Pask told us all about Tasmanian tigers or the thylacine. Dr. Brent Davis introduced us to the Minoan culture. And Dr. Rebecca Allen told us about the future of space exploration. Guys, we look forward to joining you next time on There Will Be A Test. See ya. Hi, me again. Hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you really like the show, we'd love a good review. This podcast was produced by Jed Wood with the invaluable assistance of talent coordinator Michael McDermott. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording and we pay respects to elders both past, present and emerging. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Dave Thornton, and catch you next time where there will be a test. G'day, Jed Wood here. I'm the producer of this podcast. Just a quick message to let you know about our GoFundMe campaign. We really love making this show and we do it as economically as possible, but there are some costs that are simply unavoidable. So if you've enjoyed the show and would like to contribute to help us pay the bills, we'd really appreciate it. Go to GoFundMe.com and search for There Will Be A Test. Thanks so much and we hope you enjoyed the show.